0: Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP, Jaswar Report. Ladies and gentlemen, the presidential campaign has started, and in some ways, um, actually in most ways, it's starting to look like a circus. I've heard all their speeches, but it's mostly rhetoric. None have provided any sense of how they're going to fix what's wrong with this country. So instead of having another politician on the show who'd give us great answers and no solutions, I thought it might be better to have someone on the show who possesses a greater degree of intellect. Our guest is Peter Kernan, who used to work at Wall Street and now is a New York Times bestseller of the book called Becoming China's Bitch. He's out with another new book called America Mojo. American Mojo, sorry. so welcome to the show, Peter.
1: I'm so delighted to be with you, Vip. Thanks.
0: I love the title of your first book, uh, Becoming America's Bitch. Why such an aggressive title?
1: Well, I, I did pick a provocative title, there's no doubt about it, and it was outside my comfort zone and probably a lot of people's. But what I wanted to do was shake people, mm. because when we were young, we had the finest minds in our, in our country. We had Kissinger and Brzezinski and George F. Kennan watching every twist and turn of the Soviet Union. We want to understand them as a risk, as an opportunity, mm. as a threat. Who is watching China for us today? Who are the leaders and the, and the thinkers that we can point to who are saying, this is a good thing about China, this is a danger about China, this is how we thread the needle? Who are those people today?
0: Well, you know, Donald Trump came on uh, the presidential race a few days ago, and, and, and he was sort of very anti-China. Why do we need to hate China? Because for me... China lends us money, is our biggest lender.
1: Yeah, I think you've got something there. That China, we're we're in a very strong kind of <coughs> collaboration with China, whether we like it or not. Mm. I'll give you an example that your readers and listeners will identify with. you remember when General Motors went bankrupt? And it was really a dark day for that co- company, for the country, for the employees. And they struggled back they got some help from the government but they struggled back Mm. and they became the number one car company in the world from from near death they sold a little over nine million cars that year and that was a great day for america a great day for the workers of general motors Mm -hmm. those nine million cars two and a half of them were sold to china so that our best days will come when we embrace China, we engage China, we don't run for them. and hate. They are very difficult negotiators, very tough, I think tougher than we are. But they are going to be a part of our future and a part of our success, no matter whether we like it or not.
0: But look, the title of your book, uh, The Way Donald Trump Was Talking About Them, we, we're made to, we, we sort of seem to be brainwashed into thinking they're becoming our enemy, and I'm not sure that's correct.
1: They are going to frustrate us. Of it. Like, like no nation I can think of as frustrated as perhaps since Russia back in the days of the Cold War. They're going to frustrate us at the Security Council. When we want to put sanctions on Iran, they're going to say, not so fast. When we want to do something to put a ring around Syria, they're going to say, we don't think so. We're going to continue to trade with Syria. We don't really want to do exactly what it is the United States does. And, in fact, we don't want to do what the World Bank tells us, and we don't want to do what the IMF tells us. In fact, we're going to set up our own uh, development bank in Asia, and we're going to pursue our own initiative because we think we have the right to be at the table as a significant player. We're no longer junior varsity. So they're going to frustrate us. But the point is the number two market after the United States for Apple products like iPads and, and um, the iPhones is China. China.
0: Well, they might frustrate us. I get that, but they also liquidate us. They, they provide us liquidity. We, we, we're a we're a country that's running on credit. Um,
1: you said it. Here's here we sit with about half, a little less than half of our budget needs to be borrowed every year. Right. Who's going to lend it to us? Europe, uh, you know, Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, Greece. I mean, the the Japan. The only legitimate power lender to the United States in the world mm. is as you've identified China
0: so and why would we want to upset them
1: Bobby that Ford? seems to me like that seems to me like a if I would counsel not that he'd listen to me necessarily but I would counsel someone wanted to be president it is perfectly fine to be firm with china they dump goods they don't have the quality control we do they t- they take our intellectual property okay on all that but it's a it's a it's a dance of an embrace of a powerful partner who needs us and we need them it's a codependency in that respect and we ought to respect the power of china to make us a bigger better economic entity
0: but then coming out with what Donald Trump was saying what he intends to do with them and things like that does nothing to actually help the relationship move forward and and if they're tough negotiators now you've made it personal
1: which is which anybody who negotiates mm. knows that you only do that when you've really got the upper hand and we don't Although, and 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 we don't you're you're so right and so what we need to do is. This reminds me, frankly, of when in um, Mitt Romney trying to act tough said, "Well, they're a currency manipulator." Well, there you go. That's that's really going to set them back. They they laughed at that, but the point is, just because they behave in ways that we don't like, doesn't mean that you assault them in public. You get up and give a toast. Uh, that we had a bunch of uh, the president came to the White House and Biden gave a toast and saying, you know, all these awful things about the Chinese. It's not the way to negotiate with them because it's not going to change their behavior.
0: And let me tell you, having lived there for about four years, um, for the Chinese, saving face is one of the most important things in their culture. And, and, And the way we are progressing in America and the way we are talking about them, it's going to get very personal in a very negative way.
1: Let's, let's, let's take your saving face because you clearly have an understanding of their mental position, right. their, their sort of psychological position. So here's an example. We have a brand-new president, President Xi, and his wife happens to be the most famous folk singer in all of China. She, his wife is actually better known than he is. It would mm. be like Mitt Romney marrying Reba McIntyre. Okay? But she wants to be a real world-class first lady. So she comes to the United States with her husband for a meeting, a summit meeting, in California with Barack and uh, the president and Mrs. Obama. However, Mrs. Obama elects not to go. There's a school thing with the kids, and she can't go over a three-day period. So here you have the president Mm -hmm. meeting with the president, if you Mm -hmm. will, in California at Sunnylands, and Mrs. President, uh, Mrs. She is, in fact, left standing alone. Where is the face in that? If you know anything about China, and it's clear you do, that's insulting. And insults are, they're like, they I think they're like radiation. They're cumulative. They mm. pile up. You know, they get to a point where they make you a little bit angrier, a little bit more frustrated, a little more intractable. And our approach to China is... It's fine to play hardball. I'm all for that. But you've got to do it in a sophisticated way. And sometimes I have to say, in the urge to pound the bully pulpit, we have people running for president who simply aren't dealing with China in a sophisticated way. And I think that's a mistake.
0: And I almost think it's almost like brainwashing. Um, Something that doesn't necessarily exist at, at the main street level, maybe at the political level, because they are tough negotiators. Uh, But you're really washing laundry, dirty laundry in public, and and, and that's not really going to go down well uh, with these uh, presidential candidates. Um, I want to focus on your new book, American Mojo, Lost and Found, Restoring Our Middle Class Before the World Blows By. So congratulations on that.
1: Thank you very much. What
0: made you write it? How important is the middle class vote in this upcoming election?
1: Well, it's it's interesting you say what made me write it. I was literally mm. walking along the bunt in Shanghai with a young executive, and it was the end of my last book. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I've learned a lot from you, and you've hopefully learned something from me about China, but I have a question that's been nagging me forever. I can't figure it out. I said, what is it? He said, we're trying to move heaven and earth to create a strong middle class in China. And it's very hard to do. We have many people who have lived on farms all their lives, coming to cities, and it's just difficult to create a middle-class existence for them. Mm-hmm. Here the United States has the most powerful middle class in history, and you're systematically crushing it, and you're allowing it to atrophy, and you're not feeding it and supporting it. You're just letting it drift. And what's, what's behind that? Why are you doing that? I don't understand the rationale. And sometimes it's just a simple question that can start something. I, I, I literally was, I was flying back from, from, um, from China thinking to myself, gosh, why, why are we tolerating this? Mm. Um, and that was the essence of – that was four years ago, and that was the essence of this book. That's where, that's where it emanated from, that one question.
0: It's funny that the guy, the executive, said that to you because he said something like, you're not feeding it. Um, you know, in the interest of the free market and the, and the free economy – Are our politicians to blame for the decline or the failure or the lack of feeding of the middle class? Because if you think about it, we have a great population of a middle class. Um, And the greater the population of this middle class, the greater the need and the greater availability of credit. But at some point, the economy gets overstretched because the banks will... Have overlent, um, asset values will be overpriced, and bang, we have a recession. Now, right now we have low interest rates, historically low. So you would think that would be a precursor to get the economy started, but the banks are really not lending. It's not a government problem. It's it's actually a almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Well, we got ourselves in very hot water mm-hmm. if you sort of watch the flow of middle class life back in the 50s and 60s it was basically a white experience and there was single breadwinner household Mm -hmm. and then at the end of the 60s as the post-war enthusiasm started to wane as some of the the smoldering economies post-war started to come online like japan and germany Then suddenly we had more competition, and then, of course, we had the Arab oil embargo. Oil at the time was $3 a barrel. You can imagine that. You can't get a a gallon of gas today, which you could have bought a barrel of oil back. But but what we lost was control of the production. The the Arab countries said, wait a minute, you can't tell us us what to produce and what to charge. We're going to start owning more of it, and we lost control of that asset. Then we had the three uglies, the three uglies being double-digit inflation, Double-digit interest rate, double-digit unemployment, and that really made the 70s a lost decade. And during those 70s, women started to go back to work. Women started to leave their household chores and become co-breadwinners because the single breadwinner family simply couldn't match the growing costs of being in the middle class. Mm. And for a while, it worked. But wages were flat in real terms and the expenses of being in the middle class nevertheless grew higher and higher each year with this double-digit inflation and so you had a gap between what people earned and what they spent Mm -hmm. and they were stuck because there was no one other no one else in that family could put to work and they were thinking what's our solution what's our solution and then it hit just borrow you have got value in your house you have got value in your car and they hawked every asset and every cash flow and consumer lending exploded to trillions of dollars right. with no limit and we went from having a few hundred credit cards to billions and what it meant was that every American was suddenly in debt you know 15 16 17 thousand dollars which at the time was punishing all that worked okay until the housing value that was underneath so many people's net worth calculations and so many people's leverage uh, considerations suddenly flipped upside down and this house that was your principal asset is now worth net of your mortgage nothing and the meltdown occurred now the meltdown was exacerbated by Wall Street and by excessive betting and, and speculation on this ever upward increasing curve of housing values And when all hell broke loose, suddenly people were too busy bailing out their own boats to figure out what was going on. And today where we sit is we have an American population that's underemployed, over-levered, they've borrowed a lot to go to college, they've borrowed a lot to be in their house, and they're sitting there with almost no way to create a net worth. And that's the essence of the problem that the middle class faces.
0: Okay. My perspective is this. In the olden days with our parents, you owned what you earned. Yep. Nowadays, you own what you can borrow.
1: In fact, it starts with this simple calculation. Mm. What's my monthly nut? All right? I've talked to so many bankers and so many community bankers because we've really turned into a two-bank system. The big, huge, too-big-to-fail banks, which deal with the corporations, and then the community bankers. But the community bankers are getting starved. They're basically not able to lend like they once did. And the lending requirements are such that it's much harder to borrow.
0: So it's not a political problem then, is it?
1: Oh, I I think that the notion that Mm -hmm. people have that the federal government is going to come to their aid and solve this problem is so misplaced. They have a role to play, but this is not one where you hold your cup out to the government and say, bail me out. It can't be done.
0: Well, they've played their role, right? They've played their role. I mean, interest rates are at the lowest ever. Now it's up to... um, the, the role of economics and, and, and banks to sort of start the system. The, the banks are just not lending.
1: And what's fascinating about what you said, it works so well in the United States. Mm. Just what you said, it works so well. We were in the we were in the toilet. Do you remember those days? And then we reduced interest rates to near zero. Now it's frustrating if you're trying to invest because you don't get a great return. But if you're somebody who owes money, mm. it is very, very much better to be paying near-zero interest rates to allow people to start to restore, to get back on their feet. And it works so well that all throughout the world, Japan is copying it now, Europe is copying it now. Everybody is trying to just, and so they're trying to keep their interest rates as low as possible and try and re-stimulate their economy re-encourage their banks to lend and we're starting to see some high-tech disruptors say oh i'm going to create a bank so goldman sachs says they're going to get into the consumer lending business my attitude about that is welcome to the jungle it's a whole different business than you've ever been in before but the point is there are people who say the underserved right now the unbanked are people in the middle and so now you're back to the choice of the olden days that you described it do you live on what you make or is the is the m- money number that you focus on what's the monthly nut I can cover if I lease that car if I buy that house if I want to send my child to college and those are going to be the very tough considerations because we have kind of a sideways economy mm. we're not really growing no we're not productivity is not going up and so and by the way one of the things people malign Donald Trump, but when he says that, that, that five-point-whatever-percent number of unemployment isn't the real number, he's right. That's not the real number. It's a manufactured number. And we're starting to see it now. As soon as jobs get created, magically people, quote, re-enter the workforce. Okay. Because you talk now, about,
0: you mentioned an interesting thing about the moment jobs are created. And politicians, all they do is these days talk about creating jobs. Um, They've never had – most of them haven't had real ones in the first place. But what is America qualified to do anymore? Because, you know, we don't like to do basic jobs. Uh, I believe we don't want to work so hard for so little. We outsource technology jobs. Um, Can we reclaim our middle class status or do we need to realign ourselves with a new reality? Because to a certain extent, you know, we can forget about manufacturing. Maybe a little bit here and there, but we can't. I'm not sure whether we can be a major manufacturing country. Um, we're not really going to reclaim the outsourcing that we're already doing, and not each and every one of us on Main Street can set up a business.
1: It's going to be a very tricky situation mm. because if you look at the choices we've made, and rather than identify individuals, let's look at the choices we've made as a nation. We have probably between one and three million. My, migrant farm workers, and we've just decided that the way we're going to harvest our crops right. is we're going to have these um, these guest worker programs, these H-2A seasonal foreign guest worker programs, and as many as 3 million people in states like California and Texas and Washington and Florida and Oregon and North Carolina, and most of these people are probably 75% are Mexican-born. Mm-hmm. Most are married, but apart from their families, they are among the lowest paid, least protected, and least healthy workers in the United States. And we've just sort of decided historically that we're going to allow that to be. What do I mean by historically? If you look at the, all the labor laws that were put out in the 1930s that had to do with labor organizing and minimum wage and overtime, historically farm workers were excluded from nearly all of these federal labor laws. So we have a group of people that are just going to be there and we're going to live with it and when you eat your vegetable or you enjoy your fruit, you should know that somebody making less than a thousand dollars a month picked that for you. And that's just, that's just a, that's a business, that's a decision we've made. We've also decided that we're going to embrace technology, whether it's overseas or here. So we make 10% more uh, steel today than we did in the 1980s, but we do it with only 25% of the employees. Why? Because we're just so much more effective and productive, and with robotics and other kinds of uh, new technologies, we don't need as many workers. So we've made that decision. Mm -hmm. So this goes to the heart of your question. What's left? And what's left is you either train people for the new reality, or deal with high levels of unemployment or worse, in some ways, underemployment.
0: So is the new reality that you're talking about lowering your expectation, that we will have a declining middle class regardless?
1: Here is here is where I come out on it, and it's something people get to debate endlessly, okay? So this is just my take. Thank you. I think we have a choice. mm and the choice is we can stay on the path we're on. And that's what most of the people who are running for president. They're talking about incremental stuff here and there. We can stay on the path we're on, and it guarantees what you just said. Unfulfilled expectations, too many young people without great jobs or opportunities, and the attendant social costs. That's, that's what's going to happen. And even the people who say I'm a champion of the middle class, I'm going to tax the 1%, I say great, go ahead and do it. Now, what are you going to do? You'd ask that question. What are you going to do with the money? And most of them don't have a clue. They don't know how to create jobs because, just as you say, they've never created one in their lives. But here's a choice that we have. A choice is to look at what are the great fundamental trends in the world that might help us out. Now, some people will point at the increasing concentration of wealth around the world, and it's true. Okay? Okay. There's an orgy of evidence to prove it, 85 people, 85 individuals are worth more than half of everybody else in the world. So, okay, you win on the concentration point, but there's another mountain that's being created. It's bigger and every bit as powerful, and that is the growth of the world middle class outside our borders. And the Organization of Economic uh, Development, um, OECD, Mm -hmm. says that in the next 10 years – a billion new members of the world's middle class will be created and in the next 10 years after that a billion more why is now, that a,
0: why is that a worry though i mean you know if people are doing well outside of our home that's great that's that's good for them
1: here's how i look at it mm. and this is just me i look at it the way you do that it's either it's either a threat or it's an opportunity i say let's make it an opportunity and the reason i say that is who knows better than the united states the american worker how to feed how to service, how to create products for an emerging middle class. We know how to do it. So you look at companies like Yum! Brands, which is Pizza Hut, and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Taco Bell. That's a US-based company, Louisville, Kentucky. Their biggest markets now for their products are not New York, California, or Texas. They've decided and have built their growth on bringing their products that are enjoyed by middle-class Americans to China so their China market their India market those are their biggest markets they dwarf the number of restaurants they have in the United States mm-hmm. and it seems ironic but the simple fact is there's not enough growth here in our borders to feed the needs of our middle class and you say why why would that be why would that be well it's simple 80% of the uh purchasing power is outside our borders and 90% of the economic growth in the world is outside our borders and 95% of the consumers are outside our borders so isn't at least one key part of a strategy of helping our middle class saying why don't we feed them so you lived in you lived in China so you, you live in China and you're making a few bucks now and you've you got a decent business maybe you're an entrepreneur or maybe you work in a, um, a manufacturing company as a supervisor over in China and you've got a child are you gonna feed that child infant formula made in China where there's no quality control whatsoever, and where they had a, a scandal a few years ago, you remember they were poisoning kids, or right. they're in for, for, or are you gonna buy a Western brand? And what's gonna happen is, people as they start to get money are gonna feed their kids. Another one that I believe strongly is, they're gonna want great health care. China and all of Asia, except for Japan, averages about 4% of their economy spent on healthcare. We're closer to 20%, five times as much. We understand how to provide great health care and services. Well, we complain about it here, but why don't we turn it into an asset and see if we can market it overseas. Okay, it's an irony that growing stuff overseas will help us, but in fact, it's the one of the ways out, in my opinion. It is something we should be excited about. The growth of the world middle class is a tectonic plate that's shifting. Why can't it shift in our direction? We have to change the way we do trade because we do that very poorly. But why do we think
0: why... Why do we think we are owed this direction? I mean, you know, we are upset with China because they're tough negotiators. Um, we thought the Arabs with the oil embargo um, shouldn't have happened because, you know what, they owe us something. Um, in a real economy, in a, in a free market, you're not owed anything. And that really takes me to our educational system. Also. Is that going wrong? Because you have these graduates, you know, they, they work hard, they they've uh, finish their education, and majority of them are having tough times finding jobs. Leave alone a career fair.
1: Well, yes, exactly. So, let's divide our our our, our higher education uh, bucket into two people. And by mm-hmm. higher education, I'm talking about um, junior colleges, community colleges, and colleges and mm-hmm. universities. Okay? Um, there's a very large bucket, a very large bucket of people who don't complete. Which, which strikes me as a, a target-rich opportunity for improvement because if you've got 90% of the kids who are going part-time to junior college, not completing their degree in four years, you have a fundamental problem, right? So, so if you're going to go and you're gonna take on the debt and you're gonna take the workload on and not complete the job, something is fundamentally wrong. But, but let's turn to the essence of your question, which is the bridge between higher education and the workforce, and there's a there's a there's a classic, gold-plated example of how we're thinking about it all wrong. Mm-hmm. So we have an economy that's going to create on its own, in the next ten years, about a million and a quarter computer jobs, computer science jobs of various types, a million and a quarter. There's no place in the world you can go that's going to create that many. It's it's just a robust a- attribute of our of our economic profile right now.
0: You couldn't have that scenario in India and China?
1: You can, but just the size and the growth, and you know, you have Microsoft and Apple and all these countries based here, and they want to hire here. If we don't feed that need, it will of course migrate to China and India. But right now we're creating those jobs. So we're in charge of talent management for the country, you and I. We say, okay, well, if we've got a million and a quarter jobs coming up in 10 years in a certain industry, how many computer science graduates do we have every year in the United States? 40,000 at most. Woefully, if over 10 years, that means 400,000, so it will be 700,000 computer science jobs short. Now, somewhere between the people who are running these country, companies that are generating all these great jobs, and the people who are running our universities and our, and our schools and our training efforts. There, there's no dialogue. Otherwise, you know, it's a, it's a luxury we have here in the United States. That you get out of college, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I'm going to poke around. Here you have people, you know, in China. What they do is they say, "Look, here are the jobs we need, and so we're going to have STEM, science, technology, engineering, math majors focused to get on fill those jobs." Mm. In the United States we just we don't manage the talent. You do whatever you feel like. Whatever feels good and when you get out after 4 years best of luck.
0: Well that's the culture of the country, isn't it? It comes under the banner of freedom of choice and blah blah blah. What what you're saying is these million and a half jobs you're actually forcing people to study something maybe they're not good at but they just have to do it because that's the only way they're going to get a job. So is that also the new reality that you're going to have to do what you don't want to do? <coughs>
1: Well, you know, I would look at it this way, that if you have an aptitude for science, technology, engineering and math and we have a need mm. and somebody hasn't sat you down at some point and said, You know what? We have a giant need and there's giant opportunity and you ought to think about that as a part of your portfolio of things you study, then something's fundamentally wrong. And right now we have kids getting out of school where no one has really sat down with them and giving them any career guidance. If you go to the public high schools in New York, you can't believe there's one guidance counselor for perhaps six, seven hundred students. It can't and be. And in good.
0: all fairness to you, these guidance counselors, they tend to be older people. For them, it's not really a great job either. Uh, they're not really with it. See, and and, and they give you this sort of computer test where you tick boxes and then, you know, you get like a bunch of career options.
1: But if you, there was a point in your life, someone sat down with you and said, look, this is, here are your array of talents. and Here's something that you would really be good at. And by the way, there are jobs available in plenty.
0: I there. filled out one of those forms, and it came out that I should be a male nurse.
1: How's <laughs> <laughs> so my it's fault? True. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to say that um, I really do view part of the problem as a talent management issue. And we have a mismatch when well, we're creating great jobs in biotechnology, in engineering, in science, in math, in computers, in healthcare, and we don't have people who are smart and ready and trained up and with the aptitude and the training for those jobs. That somebody should stand up and say, let's build a bridge between these two activities. Let's create something, and I don't think that's the federal government, frankly. I don't think the federal government is going to step in and say, universities, businesses, let's get together and find a way to build a path so that someone who graduates from a junior college or someone who's thinking about what they might do with their career has a clue about where the jobs are actually being created. So the greatest frustration I have for all those running for president is there are about 4 million skill-based jobs available in this country right now open jobs and these jobs don't need to be created they've been created they need to be filled and that's a gigantic difference it's a lot easier to to fill a job than to create one and the beauty of these jobs these skill-based jobs is they have that magical multiplier effect what do I mean by that if you hire me to do some computer work for you the likelihood is my company or somebody else is going to have to hire one or two more people to support me in the work I'm doing So one job becomes three jobs. And so the 4 million jobs that are unfilled, if they're filled, become 8 or 10 million jobs. And most people would consider that a robust opportunity. But where are the people who are running for president talking about this most basic building block and the reason they don't? Is that they've never created a job? They've very rarely said you're hired, and they've never really been comfortable working with people who do that for a living. Saying, you're hired.
0: With these unfilled jobs, is that because we don't have the talent? We're not. We're not skilled. We're not qualified.
1: You use a great word, qualified, and um, in a way, it's the it's 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 the key question, isn't it? there's definitely a skills gap, right? We, we know that we have people who are not skilled for a certain job, but skills can be taught, right? Mm. Skills can be, I can learn how to do this, you can learn how to do that. But the qualification question vexes me a little bit, because it goes so directly to the heart of the matter. What are we qualified to do? And I guess the way I'd answer that is that whether we're qualified or not, are we hungry enough? I could see somebody saying, you know, I don't want to do a farm worker job because I want to use my brain more. I want to use my skills more. I want to be better paid. I get all that. But here's a great job. And in fact, many great jobs that are available. And you may not be totally qualified for the job, but are you hungry enough? Do you have that lust for self-improvement enough to fill that job? Hmm. And I'm not sure I've got the answer to that. I think it's a phenomenal question. It's it's actually, in a way, goes to the psychology rather than to the underlying ability, if you get what I'm saying.
0: And that's where I think we differ from our parents. Um, it's very easy to look back and hold that middle class at that time as a standard, but you can't bring it forward because I think our expectations, our attitude, our mindset has changed. Um for good or bad, I don't know.
1: Well, here's what happened way back when, right? When 16 million GIs and the women who were in nursing and the, and the men and women who were on the bases all kind of returned home, wherever mm. that was, from the theater of war in the Pacific, in Japan or in Europe, 16 million people came home, and the country, like never before, has been aligned in, what can we do to help them out, right? This is one of those things where business and government and regulators and lawyers and bankers, they were all together. And people were building houses up at Levittown and anything they could to help people along. Mm. And we rose to the occasion as a people. We, we learned what we had to learn. We engaged with the opportunities. Many, many people created their own well-being. And people who came back from the war were ready. They were ready to start families and to build companies and to build a country. And we exploded in 20 years of uninterrupted, the GDP between 1940 and 1960 tripled. So it was an unbelievably productive time. And we did so in part because we had this fervor that you're talking about, this fire in the belly. And it was shared, and if you were doing well, then I might be inspired to do well, and so they were fed off each other. And so if you look at it somewhere in the 1950s, when we went from being a, a country that basically made things for a living, where we became a country that was a service economy. And then more and more white-collar workers were created, and this ladder we created was mounted steadily by more and more people. Frankly, at the time, it was still largely white. But even then, we started to see opportunities begin, the first beginnings of opportunity are to open up. Yeah, and
0: and you mentioned fire in the belly, which goes back very appropriately to your book, American Mojo. Um, and and you, you're talking about, you know, what would be the practical ways, not rhetoric, what would be the practical ways to rebuild the middle class? I mean, we spent some time analyzing the problems, the attitudes, and, and, and looked at the stats. Um, let, let's start with, like, the U.S. infrastructure.
1: Okay, let, let's, let's talk about infrastructure and people mm. say, what does that mean? Okay, and,
0: and give me hardcore what you would do if you were elected.
1: Okay, <laughs> I'm certainly not running, but here's what I would say anybody who's running, this is what you should do. Infrastructure is that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of bridges that you are driving across today as you're listening to this that are substandard. They've been graded D by the, you know, the, the engineers of the nation. And there is no argument between Democrat or Republican that they need to be fixed. The railways, the rail beds that move all of our goods and in fact do so in a highly energy efficient way. The roadways is down to the simple pothole. The airports, contrast our airports to almost any airports for any nation in the world, particularly the emerging nations. Mm -hmm. The, The shipping ports, give you an example. We think of ourselves as a trading power. But as of a couple of years ago, the top 10 trading ports in the world, none of them were in the United States. Not one of the top 10 trading points, ports in the world in the United States. And China today has six of the top 10 trading ports. They've decided we're going to bet on our infrastructure. We're going to build world-class shipping facilities. We're going to have world-class rail and power supply and everything else. We have chosen another course. And so one of the things I would do if I were to be elected (laughs) is I would say immediately, I've heard numbers between one and four trillion, but I'd just say, let's start with a one trillion dollar commitment that every American is going to sign in blood that together we're going to build a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure.
0: Where would you get that trillion dollars?
1: Well, here's what I would do. I would engage the American people in the task. I wouldn't just say, we're going to create another corporate government bureaucracy and tax everybody and do it. What I would say is no. I'm going to take a page from World War II where we sold war bonds. I want to create the bank that everyone can love, an American infrastructure development bank. It has no other job than that. It doesn't do uh, collateralized debt obligations. It doesn't do four-legged swaps. It doesn't do derivatives. What it does is it funds the building of American infrastructure. Now, who would put up the trillion dollars? We could probably do it by having it. A third equity and two-thirds debt, right? So where would I get the equity? I would go to every one percenter, and I would say now is the time for all good people to come to the aid of their country. You've done handsomely. You're worth a billion dollars. You're putting money. You're putting some of that money that you've earned into this infrastructure development bank. I would go to every corporate pension fund. I would go to every union pension fund. I would go to every government pension fund and say, you're going to buy equity in this infrastructure development bank because it's something the nation needs. And I would go to the car companies. I would go to the oil companies. I would go to the communications companies. I would go to the hardware and software companies and say, you need to invest. And we could raise three to $400 billion, in my opinion, by doing that.
0: Can I just mention one thing? I think this is a great idea. But here's the thing. The sort of jobs that are going to be created out of building infrastructure or repairing it are the ones that go to new immigrants. So now you still have, to a certain extent, a large level of middle-class people empty-handed.
1: Well, here's the way I would look at it. that There are certain kinds of infrastructure that I think occupy a little higher ground. I'll give you a couple of examples. Everyone now is talking about we want alternative power generation, alternative We want wind. We want solar. We want anything else we can think of other than coal. The trouble is that our national grid lacks the sophistication and the compatibility with many of these systems. So we're going to quickly get to a point that this power that's being generated, we either can't store it or we can't transmit it, or it's going to get lost somewhere in the power grid. So we need a major electrical engineering rethink of power, of the power that turns on your light switch that runs your blender or your coffee maker or whatever else. We need to rethink that, and it needs to be rethinked from stem to stern. That's one example, and that's a higher-end job. Another one is we are the biggest producer of nuclear power in the world. No one else comes close. France has a higher proportion of their power that's done by nuclear, but we are number one. We have 102 nuclear power plants. We're running them at full tilt. Mm -hmm. We have not built a new one since 1979. That was a three-mile island. You think how long ago, 1979, what it means is this average plant is between 40 and 50 years old. Now, when it's hot in July on a summer afternoon, do we say, look, that's kind of an older plant. We shouldn't run it too hard? No, we run it full tilt. And there are states in the union that have most of the power that they generate come from nuclear power. What is our decision? What's our thinking? What's our, what's our engineering concept behind allowing nuclear power to continue to be important to us but not investing in it and restoring it and building it and improving upon it? We're just going to let it atrophy and hope for the best. There is a huge opportunity, in my opinion, in rethinking and restoring and reconsidering the nuclear power plants in our country another high-end job so yes you can look at it and say look filling potholes is pretty menial and I get that it's important it's necessary it sure makes it feel better when you're driving your car down the road mm-hmm. but it doesn't create the quality jobs you're talking about but I think if we look deeper if we look at other kinds of pipelines for instance the digital divide Uh, You and I have talked in the past about uh, a school that I'm involved with, a a school, a charter school in New York City, where at night the kids sit on the steps, and we didn't know why they were doing it. They're doing it in cold weather, warm weather, rain, and we asked them why they're hanging out on the school steps Mm -hmm. because when I was a boy, that's not what I did after hours. And you know what they told us? It's the only place we can get Wi-Fi so all of us who kind of log on within, not to worry, we can get it wherever the hotspots are everywhere. These kids, the only place they could get it was off the school's Wi-Fi, so they're going there at night. We have a rethinking of our digital architecture. Again, these are high-end jobs. These are complicated jobs. They're jobs if we do it right. They will literally bring technology and digital capability to millions of people who don't have it right now.
0: Well, in your book, you've also talked about bringing world-class health care to the developing world. So you're talking taking Obamacare abroad?
1: Well, I would say not Obamacare because Mm. that's kind of a, uh, I view that as a way to pay and provide health care. I look at it far more as this. Who makes better stent and heart valve devices and artificial knees and artificial joints and... All of the higher end so high end
0: medical production,
1: yes, we own that business in the world. And as you see people who start to make some money in these foreign countries, they're going to want to fix their aching hip, they're going to want to get a new knee, they're going to want to get new cataracts um, to replace their clouded cataracts. If you go to India, and you look, there are projected to be a hundred million people with diabetes in India in twenty years and there's already a huge proportion of the population has diabetes. Mm -hmm. Can we bring what we know how to do in terms of servicing and care and support and products in the healthcare sphere to people in these foreign countries? Because they're going to want to buy it. I think one of the first things that happens when you start making some money or you have a middle-class emerge in a country what they say is, if I get sick, I want to be well taken care of. And I think you could extend it. I actually think there's a lot we can offer in financial services that, uh, that doesn't exist in these countries, and credit cards and other kinds of constructs that we know how to do that they don't.
0: Well, capitalism was invented in America. Um, what would you do to rebuild that sense of entrepreneurship?
1: The toughest question... I've been asked in a long time. It's the toughest question because there are parts of the country you can go to like the Silicon Valley and parts of New York and and parts of Massachusetts where most of the venture, where the the market is sparkling with new ideas. But here we have 75% of venture capital which is funding these high-tech startups going in three states, New York, California, actually California number one, New York and Massachusetts. Mm. That leaves 47 others. Now, one of the things I'm starting to see is we have to respect when we have opportunities. And I think this oil shale dividend, where we're becoming a big producer and by some measures the biggest producer of energy, that is a dividend that we have not as a nation fully appreciated. I get the environmental concerns with any kind of energy creation, whether it's coal or nuclear or power or any of that, there are always, even with wind, There are always environmental concerns. However, this has, like nothing I've seen in a very long time, the chance to transform our economy. And we have not really embraced it. We've created a lot of lore. Some of it's true. Some of it's not. A great deal of it's not. And we need to embrace new opportunities when they occur. The way I would do it is we've become a nation of cities. And I think we can't allow the federal government to drive this. You know, Houston is a case in point. Houston has something called the Greater Houston Partnership. They've pulled together their Chamber of Commerce and their economic development activity, and they have something called the World Trade Organization down there. And they are so active that one measure, and it's one that I haven't seen written anywhere, but the number three market in the United States for foreign diplomats, is houston texas there's something like a thousand foreign diplomats living in houston and they're not there because it's anywhere near the state department they're there because they sense the entrepreneurial spirit and what they're trying to do in houston i've met with the people down there because i said what's going on here they said we're trying to do the trifecta which is to create good high-end jobs good mid-range jobs and try and attract many young people as they get out of school and junior college to come here and if we can feed that, that energy, then we can create a sense of entrepreneurship. Well, I think that every, every town has to kind of come up with its own strategy for how to do so. But it's a really tough question, a good one.
0: Well, we've almost come to the end of the show. American Mojo, your book, who should read it? Voters well, uh, before they vote?
1: Uh, I, I really was counseled. By my publisher don't come out in the middle of the election and i deliberately said i don't want to do that i want to come out exactly during the election because i felt and predicted that most of the people running would claim they're going to be the champion of the middle class <laughs> and it's extraordinary isn't it that virtually everybody on the republican and democratic side has a centerpiece of their strategy i'm going to be a champion of the middle class my book is written so wherever you come out on the vote this will tell you a question. You might not agree with everything I say, but it'll give you questions, hard questions to ask when people use a phrase that I think really works for me, rhetoric. When you get rhetoric that's not practical, that rhetoric that doesn't lead to a, a tangible outcome, I hope my book will help people ask the tough questions of these people who want to lead the nation. So if we do something, we do it for real, not just in a rhetorical debate like the Cambridge debates or something
0: like well, that. Well, here's a practical and a tough question. Where can we get the book?
1: You can get the book wherever books are sold, Uh, you know, uh, all of the leading online. And if you can find a bookstore, God bless you, you can buy them in bookstores, but wherever books are sold, online or otherwise.
0: Thanks for coming on the show, Peter. Great and very insightful. pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account. Just type in Vip Jaswell Report uh, for Facebook and at Vip Jazz World for Twitter. A special shout out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Bueser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.